Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants and Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast, you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. Hello, I am here with Nicole Ruth Smith, the author of Panic at the Ultrasound. I am so excited to talk to you, Nicole. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We are going to get right into it because I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about you and kind of some background as to your experience with cancer as an AYA um, before we kind of dive into your article, which hopefully everybody at this point has already listened to. If you haven't, head over to the first part of this episode so that you can um, kind of have a little bit more of the background of our conversation. So, Nicole, if you could just take a minute and tell everyone a little bit about your diagnosis. What was your diagnosis? When were you diagnosed? And just like a little bit about your experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, when I was 23, 24-ish, I had just moved out to New England, didn't have like an established relationship with a doctor or anything here yet. And I noticed a lump in my throat and, you know, didn't think anything of it at the time. Didn't really have a quick, easy doctor's office to go to. So I put it off for a while, um, but I could kind of tell it, it felt like it was still growing. It was becoming more uncomfortable for me over time. So I eventually started the whole cycle of getting into doctor's appointments and got a biopsy done probably like five or six months after I first noticed the lump. And the biopsy came back as benign. Um, Get out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which, you know, spoiler alert, was not accurate. <laughs> um, but luckily, I decided to have surgery to remove the tumor anyway, because it was getting so uncomfortable for me. I could feel like pressure in my neck from it. Um, so I just wanted to have that taken out, have it taken care of. So I had the surgery and they had planned on only removing the left half of my thyroid where the tumor was, but they, you know, did the pathology and all of that during surgery, found cancer and ended up taking out the whole thing. So I had a full thyroidectomy then. I was 24 at the time. So it was uh, the fall of 2018, about four and a half years ago. And then I had, you know we're all kind of plunged into the medical world and decisions and follow up and treatment and all of that. Um, so that whole kind of chaos and storm of figuring things out. And I was kind of splitting my time between Boston where I just moved to and Colorado where my mom's insurance was, which I was still on. So that was like a whole extra layer. Um, but I got a couple second opinions I got two second opinions here in Boston and then went back and met with an endocrinologist in Colorado and everybody kind of recommended that I go forward with um, radioactive iodine treatment, which is like very targeted for thyroid cancer. 
So I did that back in Colorado and went back again um, in March of 2019, did radioactive iodine. And yeah, then around the time that I was coming up on my one year follow up scans for that, it was kind of just like a watch and wait, see if it's effective in the year in between. And right as I was coming up on my one year of that was March 2020. So everything got pushed back. I didn't end up getting scans until the fall of that year. And everything was kind of inconclusive. Didn't really know for sure what was going on, but it wasn't quite adding up. So um, ended up having a couple of different types of scans that were all kind of uncertain. And then a PET CT showed some suspicious lymph nodes in my thyroid bed. So that's when kind of this article takes place was around the time of all of that. There were suspicious lymph nodes in my neck and then one weird spot in my armpit. So I had um, the ultrasound, the breast ultrasound done, which was clear and then met with a surgical oncologist to plan a second surgery. And I had a fantastic surgeon. He did went above and beyond and like kind of kept looking for lymph nodes when it didn't kind of add up with the blood work and the PET CT scan that he was seeing. And he ended up finding a, a pretty big tumor. It was like two centimeters um, that was kind of hidden further deeper in my neck. Um, so I'm very grateful that he kept looking and was able to get all of that out. Um, so that was May of 2021. And now I'm just kind of still riding the wave of uncertainty, like, did the surgery go well? Are my numbers going to stay low? So far they have, um, but they're not, my tumor markers are not all the way to zero. So it's likely that I still have some amount of residual disease. So it's really just kind of a, you know, weighing the, the risks at this point of when it's worth it, if ever, to biopsy and potentially have surgery to remove any additional lymph nodes. But for now, they're not big enough to show on any scans yet. So we're just hoping it stays that way. Wow. What what a journey you've had from the very beginning. So yeah. you didn't find out that it was cancer until you woke up from that first surgery. Yeah. What yeah. was that like? Oh, it was wild. It was, you know, at the time they thought that that was it. And I, you know, had been hearing that, you know, there was a small chance that it could still be cancer, that the biopsy didn't show everything. But I never really thought about like, that as a real possibility. And so to kind of wake up with that news, but it was kind of at the point where the doctors thought like, well, it was cancer, but now it's gone. You know, now we took it all out. So it was like, I went straight from benign tumor to you had cancer, like now it's in the past tense. And I think as time went on, I realized how much I like needed that period in between to like accept what was going on. But I was like, great, it's done. You know, like I wanted to believe that. So it was really easy just to be like, great, this is going to be as easy and simple as they say. Um, but that that has not been the case <laughs> wow. at all. <laughs> no. And I think you brought up another a great point that a lot of AYAs deal with is that kind of whole insurance situation because you said you had just moved and you were not near, you were still on your mom's insurance and it was through a different state. So that whole experience of having to travel back and forth, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, that that sounds like it was 
it must have added a whole nother level of stress that you really didn't need at that time, but you kind of had to do it because of insurance. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah. a great way to put it. I it was so frustrating. I, you know, was kind of searching for a full time job. I had a part time job, but between all the insurance and figuring out what my treatment was going to be and going back and forth, I'm actually really glad I didn't have a full-time job then. And I used to joke that like figuring out the insurance was my full-time job because it was so complicated. And I really hate how much of that fell on me as the patient. I mean, like you said, like there's enough going on. And I thought to myself so many times, like, what if I wasn't you know, what if English wasn't my first language, or I wasn't, you know, at least somewhat familiar with the medical system, or couldn't like, put these pieces together as much as I can by myself. So I just can't imagine what it's like for some people who have additional barriers, but it was almost impossible, even just getting like my surgical report and the pathology notes from the hospital in Colorado to my endocrinologist here in Boston was almost an impossible task. Like they, I had was working on that for months and they got it done like the day of my appointment. It took forever and almost didn't get done in time. It's just crazy to me. And I think a lot of people listening will, will agree with us in this, but like you would think in this day and age with the technology that we have these days, that the communication between hospitals between different doctors offices between insurance and you would think that it would be a little bit more streamlined at this point but you're exactly right a lot of it does fall on us as the patient and as a young adult I mean anyone who gets handed a cancer diagnosis it that that just kind of like is an information bomb and then you're thrown all these other things that you have to juggle it's just too much it's just too much to handle and I think that your experience is very similar to that of a lot of people um so thank you for sharing that and validating the feelings of of people listening because um yeah it's just a lot it is. It's so much to go through. I think one of the hardest things is you don't like research any of that until it's happening to you. And I really wish, I know that there's, there's so much information. It's impossible to hand out like a cover, you know, a blanket statement to everybody that covers any individual experience. But I wish there was just like a, so you got diagnosed with cancer, you know, here's the basic medical terms you need to know, or like something like that to give to patients. Cause it's way too much to take in at once when your like, you know, cognitive load is lower than usual because you're dealing with everything else at the time. Exactly. And, and on top of that, you're still really young. Like you're 23, 24. These are not things that you ever probably thought you would have to be learning about and dealing with. So, oh yeah, gosh, that's there's definitely true. So <laughs> many, so many layers to it. <laughs> there really are. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that you had the radioactive, um, iodine treatment. I, I don't know much about it. I'm wondering if you would just take a few minutes to explain, is that the thing that you like literally can't be around other living people for like a certain or living things, even like plants? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Would you talk about that experience? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a unique 
situation to be in. Um, so the thyroid is one of the only types of tissue that takes up iodine in your body. And that's how, you know, a normal thyroid converts energy. It converts iodine into your thyroid hormones. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that there's such a targeted therapy for it, that they can just find a, I don't know how it works, make radioactive iodine, um, and use a specific isotope that will be taken up by your remaining thyroid tissue. So, you know, once you don't have a thyroid anymore, you don't need any of that tissue. So whether or not it's cancerous, they don't know, but it's best just to kind of, in a lot of situations, it's best just to blast the area, get rid of all that tissue. So that's what the radioactive iodine does. And yeah, like you mentioned, you take this pill that's, you know, customized to how much your doctor prescribes you. And the second you take the pill, you start becoming radioactive. So like, you can't even let the pill sit on your tongue or like sit in your mouth for a little bit, like you have to immediately swallow it. And (laughs) it's crazy, like they bring it to you in this little like lead container. It's like a couple inches thick on all sides. And, you know, the technician hands it to me and like steps six feet away. I'm like, great, this is what I'm putting into my body. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then I got a little um, wristband with the radiation symbol. And, you know, my mom drove me home, we had to sit as far apart in the car as we could. And I was really lucky that she had just bought a new house that was a multi level. And she was planning on redoing the basement. So she stayed upstairs and I just stayed downstairs the whole time. But yeah, you have to stay at least six feet away from anybody else for the first couple of days. And then you, well, you still have to stay six feet away from them, but you can start spending time with, you know, I think it's under 90 minutes or something around them. And then, and then they start to be at risk for radiation. So you're kind of, your body is processing the radiation and then you know it's coming out in all your bodily fluids so you know I had to shower a couple times a day to wash off the sweat and make sure I was drinking enough water so that it was passing through my bladder and things like that Um, and so I was in that kind of more strict quarantine for the first two days where I couldn't be around anyone at all and then I was in quarantine where I could spend a little bit of time with my mom or, you know, near friends or whatever for seven days. Wow. That is such an incredible sounding process. I mean, it's an example of how modern medicine really is just unbelievable. Yeah. Because thinking about that process, it's just wild to me. It's just, it's just wild. It sounds like it's from a movie or something, but it was your actual life. Like this is right. This actually <laughs> happened to you. Oh man. Yeah. It didn't feel real while it was happening either. It's like, how is this possible? But yeah, Ugh. it's pretty, pretty common for thyroid cancer. Wow. Now, if you don't mind me asking now without a thyroid, I'm assuming that there are, are medications you have to be on or there's yeah. probably a, a handful of side effects that you're dealing with after. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I'm on a thyroid hormone replacement um, that I'll take, I take every day, have taken every day since surgery and will for the rest of my life. Um, so it's a synthetic hormone that's meant to simulate what your thyroid does. Um, and as you can imagine, it's not perfect. You know, you're taking out this dynamic organ that can respond to your environment and just everything that's changing in your body every day. And then you've got like this static pill that isn't able to respond to that. So it's 
common and what I've experienced is like weight gain, fatigue, um, the kind of inability to control your body temperature. And then the other big side effect I've had is heart palpitation. So your heart rate, your metabolism, those are all things that your thyroid controls through that hormone. So those have been the main side effects for me. And, you know, in addition to just being on a synthetic hormone, a lot of patients, including myself, are in something called suppression therapy. So they give me a larger dose of the thyroid hormone to kind of keep those any remaining thyroid cells after the surgery, after the radioactive iodine to keep those from growing. Wow. So this is just yet another thing that I think, and it kind of goes well with the theme of the magazine, which is the unseen challenges of survivorship. But these are some things, every cancer is so different. Even the same type of cancer is so different depending on the person and their experience. But everything you're talking about I'm sure didn't even cross your mind at the beginning of it. So could you talk a little bit about how, how these challenges kind of came about and how you dealt with that as kind of new things in survivorship that you never thought would, would be a thing. Definitely. So thyroid cancer is one of the lucky cancers that people call the good cancer. So even before, even after I got the benign biopsy results and leading up to the surgery, whenever someone mentioned this, you know, slim possibility that it could be cancer, they brushed it off even more by saying, but you know, if you're going to get a cancer, you want thyroid cancer. Like it's, it's so nice to get, I don't know. It's such a good cancer to get. (laughs) just. I hate that term. I know. And I feel like the more cancer survivors I talk to, the more cancers I hear, you know, physicians call the good cancer. So I'm like, what? Yeah. What is their idea of that? There's no such thing. Right. Right. (laughs) There's no comparing them like that. But anyway, having doctors kind of brush it off. My surgeon, who ended up being the doctor that diagnosed me, the first surgeon, you know, I remember him saying before the surgery, like, even if it is cancer, we'll just, you know, cut it out in the surgery, you'll take a pill for the rest of your life. And that's it. So they kind of, you know, makes it sound so easy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I was like, okay, great. That sounds good. (laughs) It does sound like a good cancer. But then actually living that is so different. I mean, even just getting on the right dose of the thyroid hormone is like, for some people, it takes years. It took probably five or six months for me. And it takes, you know, four to six weeks whenever you do make a change to really start feeling those effects. So it's just like can become this endless cycle. Yeah. Of like, am I feeling better? I don't really know. I still have to wait. And then you have to, you know, try again. So it took most of the first, you know, half of that first year for me to kind of get on the right dose. And even just, you know, kind of the mental adjustment that first year was definitely the most difficult for me just getting used to everything and I think the other thing that I wasn't really prepared for well there's many things but the one of the other big things I wasn't really prepared for is just the amount of information and keeping track of everything and you know learning what all the different blood tests are and how to monitor everything and the different types of scans and doctors and just all of that beyond just the diagnosis, but like those kind of words you have to bring into your vocabulary to like 
be an advocate for yourself through the rest of your health, you know, the rest of your life. Totally. I think, I think we've all unfortunately learned that we have to be our own advocates, right? Um, it sounds like you, you were at multiple points in your experience. Um, but yeah, it's just something that comes with it. And I agree with you. I think there's, again, going back to that information overload, you kind of are forced to learn all of this information so that you are knowledgeable about what's happening to your own body and, and everything. So, yeah, exactly. It's a a lot. It's, it's a lot. So it's safe to say that you would agree that survivorship is not this like easy peasy situation that some people chalk it up to be would you agree with that (laughs) absolutely yeah Yeah. I think it's it's lifelong no matter what that looks like but yeah it really is lifelong totally I would love to get into um, some questions that I had after reading your article yeah Um, there were so many parts of it that resonated with me personally even though I had a different type of cancer so um, I'm sure that anyone else listening um, who's ever had to have an ultrasound, a lot of what you wrote probably sounded and felt familiar um, to them. But one line that was kind of towards the beginning of your article that said, she seems remarkably unbothered while I am bracing for the ground to drop out from under me. What does this mean to you personally? Yeah, I think... It's kind of, for me, it's kind of this summary of like, I guess, sort of the gap that happens sometimes between us and the medical professionals. I mean, I know it's their job not to get, you know, emotionally invested in everybody, but when you're there as the patient and you feel like everything is on the line, like this is life or death, and it just all feels so big. And then, you know, some nurse is just going about her work day and bringing people back to the ultrasound room. It just really struck me in that moment in particular, how, you know, nervous and afraid and all the emotions I was feeling. And then she's just going about her day um, and not even, you know, aware of, of what I'm thinking in my head or kind of the larger context of what's going on medically in my world. And that just kind of seemed weird to me at that time. I mean, it, it makes sense, but I was like, wow, she is just living a totally different life than I am. (laughs) I think the way you wrote that line was just beautifully written because I, I definitely felt that way a lot when dealing with certain medical professionals at, at various appointments. But I also got this feeling very much when I was like, oh, doing random everyday things that like I still had to do (laughs) as a young adult, um, while dealing with cancer. So, um, it just really resonated with me that feeling of, okay, my world is completely turned upside down. Literally the only thing that's in my brain right now is what I'm going through. Right. And here I am checking out at the grocery store, listening to someone complain about something so insignificant and ridiculous. Like little things like that is where it really hit me and resonated with me that like, wow, the world is still turning. Like these people still are just living their lives. Meanwhile, I'm going through this like life altering thing. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. that line was just very, thank you for writing it the way you did. It was very, um, it resonated with me oh, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Like the world still turns and you're like, how, how is that possible? Right. <laughs> Seems like everything stopped, you know, the moment you have that diagnosis or you are walking into another scan, but yeah, things, things keep happening. And specifically, when you're at, you know, your cancer center and you're right, those nurses probably see 20, 30 patients a day minimum, you know, bringing them to their room. But to you, that moment is so much more of a moment, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. And that, yeah, just totally is, is weird to think about. Yeah, it is. It is very weird to think about. Um, you also talked a lot about that clicking of the ultrasound wand. Oh my goodness. When you, when I read that part of your article, um, it's such a triggering sound for anyone that has had to have an ultrasound before. I'm wondering if throughout your experience with cancer, are there any other, what may seem insignificant, like sounds or smells or anything that trigger you still to this day? Um, I think that's kind of the main one in terms of like a specific sound. And I think also watching the ultrasound screen is something that I I cannot let myself do. The very first ultrasound that I had when I was, you know, kind of before I got the diagnosis and was kind of figuring out what was going on, I'd never had an ultrasound or anything like that before. So I was kind of in a position where I could see the screen and wasn't thinking about you know, what, what that would feel like to be watching that as it happened. And there was a nurse in the room who must've been watching my heart monitor or something. And all of a sudden she's like, please remember to breathe. And I was like totally panicking, but I didn't even think anything of it. And, you know, starting to feel woozy of like, what am I looking at? But once I looked away, it was like better to calm down. But yeah, now anytime I go in, it's so tempting to look at the screen and, you know, try to get information out of the clicks and everything like that. But it's, I've learned that it's really best for me yeah. not, to, not to try and do that because I'm not an ultrasound technician, but it's, it definitely can feel very triggering for me to, to watch the screen or yeah, the more clicks you hear to start kind of spiraling from that. Um, but I don't, I don't think there's any other big ones for me. I mean, of course, any hospital has like a pretty distinct smell, which you don't love to be around, but nothing else really sticks out to me. Yeah, no, the ultrasound clicking is definitely, yeah. And, and what's hard too, is that the tech who does the ultrasound, regardless of what type of ultrasound you're getting, they're like literally not allowed to say anything. So yeah, even if you, I mean, I, I have countless memories of me at, where I would like try to ask something or try to say something and they'd be like, I really can't, I really can't say, yeah. like, but I know, you know, <laughs> I think that's what makes it that much harder and yeah. that much more triggering. Cause you know that they're like deciphering information, but you are not going to get anything mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. And my endocrinologist actually does her own ultrasounds when I go in for checkups. So it's like kind of this stark difference now for me, where sometimes I'm used to getting that immediate feedback of like, this is what I'm seeing. Oh, I'm not worried about this, you know, and then I go to other ultrasounds with just a tech and it's like, wait, now I don't get all the information right away. I have to wait. So it, it makes it feel that much more 
uncertain and makes me feel that much more anxious to be in that situation. Yeah, that sounds really difficult to have to go back and forth between that. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. Very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically that moment in your article where you talked about how you literally couldn't hold in your emotions anymore and you just let them flow while you were laying there on that table in that quiet room with only the clicking. Um, That paragraph really got me because for some reason being in an ultrasound room and having that done is definitely the most vulnerable I think I've felt and I've had lots of different scans done I mean mammograms you would think that's a pretty vulnerable situation (laughs) (laughs) but but not not compared at least for me personally when you're laying there and you know someone has this information and they're looking at you and and there's nothing you can do or say um yeah I just I felt every word that you wrote and um would you agree that that that's just a very vulnerable feeling to be laying there and and yeah definitely yeah definitely I think it is I think there's something like physically vulnerable about just kind of laying there and you know they're kind of prodding you with this ultrasound wand in a way that I haven't had done in any other type of scan you know a CT a PET whatever you kind of just like go through your little tube and detect it somewhere that you can't see so I think that definitely adds to it that they're like right there kind of up in your face a little bit you know poking and prodding for lack of a better word and you're yeah you're like what is going on what do you know that I don't know yeah absolutely um there was a line that you said I simultaneously find it hard to trust doctors and give them too much trust. And again, that line, I read it and I had like chills because it's just so true. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So I think we all probably kind of go through this sort of like pendulum, I guess is how I think of it, um, where, you know, at first, like we've talked about the information overload, you're just kind of dropped into the deep end and you don't know what to do or what's important to know or how to advocate for yourself. So it's a lot of just like whatever the doctors say, like, I'm just going to go along with it, show up at my next appointment and like do what they tell me. And then kind of along the way, as I, you know, got that false positive or false negative from the first biopsy and then had like uncertain scan results and inconclusive information over time, I was like, well, what, you know, what are they here for? I kind of like swung to the other extreme and was like, how do I know that anything they're saying is actually right? And just kind of, yeah, going back and forth between those two where you want to just give up control and let them tell you exactly what to do and not think about it. But at the same time, at least for me in the back of my mind, I was always like, well, what if there is something else that they didn't find? This has happened before, you know, where, where they were wrong. And what if that happens again? So, yeah, I think that's kind of how I think of it. It's just like that pendulum swinging back and forth between the two and, through through much therapy my therapist was like well you know maybe they're somewhere in the middle like you can still kind of swing back and forth a little bit but you know start 
kind of finding your way into the middle in like a smaller range of motion than just one extreme to the other and no in between. (laughs) But I think that that even that visual, I think that makes a lot of sense because right when you kind of are thrown out of all of the active treatment and all of the craziness and you're kind of at the beginning of quote unquote survivorship, I think going from the extremes is very normal. That's a very normal way to feel. And it, over time, you know, maybe it starts to even out, but there's still times that you have highs that you still have lows. I think that that, that explanation is pretty dead on as far as how it, how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that I didn't expect, didn't, you know, understand at the time of like, why am I having so much difficulty, like trusting these scans and having so much anxiety about what the outcome is going to be. But I think that kind of helped me wrap my mind around it of, you know, her, her analogy there of, of the pendulum and kind of finding that middle ground. And then kind of going even a step further, not even just about trusting the doctors and the scans, but trusting your own body. You had a line in there about you know, the hypervigilance, the state of hypervigilance that your body is in. I mean, I had ALS. I had literally, I, it was like, well, I had cancer. So why wouldn't I have something else, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you still struggle with that or is that something that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I really like in the last 12 months is something that's just started to even out but even it surprised me so much after my second surgery how much that started to come up for me that it was kind of like I had passed all these milestones and you know now I had the second surgery and my tumor markers are so much better and I should be in a more stable place but that's when all that anxiety of like well what else could happen like how how else is my you know body gonna betray me or just what else is happening that I can't see within my own body all of those thoughts really started to come up for me like a year after my second surgery and I had this I started getting these like sort of obsessive fears of of choking where it was like you know my throat felt so vulnerable that then eating became really hard for a couple of months because I was just so afraid that you know like you said I've already had cancer like what else could go terribly wrong so I've I definitely struggled with that and more therapy, gay, <laughs> definitely helped. And I got on an anti-anxiety medication, which really, really made a huge difference for me. But yeah, I've, I've felt all of that, just like any small little, you know, nerve twitch in my neck feels like it's the whole thing starting over again. And that's really scary to feel. Well, it feels really good as a survivor, from survivor to survivor, to hear you say things that I have felt too. So we are both here. If you're listening to this and you're shaking your head because you've also had similar things happen, we're here to tell you, you are not alone. And that's a huge reason why we're even doing this in the first place. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that, Nicole. Um, There was a part in your article that you said, I'm tired of retelling my story in a few bullet points. And yet again, this was something so relatable because I think a lot of patients and survivors have to do this. Um, So I echo your feeling of that exhaustion and, you know, it's another one of those situations where I'm like, well, can't all these doctors like (laughs) 
talk before they see right? me or like <laughs> read my file. I know they're so busy, so I don't want to say anything poorly on them. But do you have any advice to any other patients or survivors who are feeling this same kind of fatigue? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely, I think, hardest in the beginning when I was kind of between multiple locations. And, and I felt like I was trying to summarize a story that I didn't really understand yet. You know, like I was still learning all the bullet points. I didn't know what was important for them to know. Whereas now I've been with my endocrinologist for four years. So she does have all those notes and everything. And I know what like the high level points that we need to go over are, but I guess, I guess my advice for that would be not to feel like you do have to tell your whole story. If it feels like it's going to be too emotionally draining for you that you can kind of just just stick with the very basic facts and you can always add more context when you're talking to a doctor that happens to me all the time especially like a pcp or someone that's just more general and they'll kind of mention something i'll be like oh wait actually like i have had that experience or this sounds similar to this other thing that i've experienced or something like that so that's definitely something i think that goes along with advocating for yourself but i've had to learn like you don't have just that one chance to tell them all your symptoms and everything that's going on like it should be a conversation the whole time so if there's not like that pressure to be like okay i i have to fit it all in in these three bullet points and then that's it um i think kind of thinking of it as the more back and forth and being willing to speak up when something kind of comes up later in the conversation is definitely helpful for me oh i think that's great advice very well said <laughs> oh good um, i'm glad it made sense <laughs> yeah it did um i would love to hear from you how it felt to write this article is writing something that you find helps you is it do you find relief when you write about what you've been through yeah yeah I definitely do I think I've I've always been interested in writing but I think especially over the last few years after all of this kind of settled a little bit just kind of being able to you know, pick up the pen, so to speak, or go to the type, go to the keypad and, and start typing. Um, it, yeah, it's been really helpful just to kind of like make sense of everything. And I think probably other people can relate to that sort of like fog and like the blurry memories, things seem a little fuzzy. So it's been really powerful, I think, for me to kind of go back and like retrace what actually happened and remember what the chronological events were. And okay, this led to that, it kind of gets a little muddled for me sometimes looking back, especially those first few months where it's just appointment after appointment, and it's kind of hard to remember how it all actually played out. So it's very helpful for me in that way. But also the the emotional side of it too, of kind of I knew that I wanted to write about this moment in particular because it felt so pivotal at the time of going through this big appointment and having that panic and anxiety around it. And I think I'm kind of able to understand that moment and like the emotions I was feeling at the time better by writing about it and putting words to it. And I think there's also power to like naming the emotions and being like, this is what 
I felt like now I can understand that I was afraid and that I was anxious. Whereas at the time it just feels like chaos, you know? Absolutely felt like chaos. So (laughs) yes, I would agree with that for sure. How do you choose? So it sounds like you do write quite a bit. How do you choose what you share and what you don't share? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I guess through editing what feels right. So like for this article in particular, I kind of just went through and wrote out like, like the chronological details and um, kind of then went back through and expanded on certain things. And over time, you know, going back over things again and again, you kind of feel like, oh, this doesn't really matter to this story, or I'm not really ready to write about that part in, in more detail. So I think just kind of continuously going back to it and kind of reworking it is really where that comes out for me. And and I should say that I did also work on this piece as part of a personal essay class that I took. So I did have, yeah, no, I was lucky to have um, feedback from other people about what was making sense to them and what was important to the story or not. But yeah, I think really the editing and kind of taking time away from it and then coming back and thinking about what needs more detail or less or what doesn't feel right. That kind of gut feeling is, is important in writing for sure. That's great advice. If there's somebody listening who maybe hasn't tried writing about their thoughts about what they've been through as a young adult cancer patient or survivor, do you have any advice or, or recommendations on a good place to start? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I've done several different kinds of like writing classes and workshops over the years to to work on these kinds of things and, and writing about the difficult emotions. I think one piece of advice that I learned from one of those classes was just to make a list of like, um, what did the instructor say? She said like the things that live rent free in your mind, like the things that are just constantly there. And even if it's just, you know, starting with a bullet point list of like the day I was diagnosed, the day I went for the breast ultrasound, um, I think just kind of getting those down on paper into a list, at least for me, kind of helps clear up some of that mental space. And then you have like a list of things that you can go back and write when you're ready. But I will also say that maybe don't start with the most emotional one first to kind of like ease yourself into it. That's definitely something I had to do where there's more emotional, really raw, you know, stories that I, that I haven't written yet because they still feel too difficult to approach. So kind of starting with ones that, that don't quite feel as overwhelming um, in the beginning is, is what was, what worked for me. Yeah, that's more great advice. I love it. And I I feel like for me, it also totally depends on what it is that I am writing about. Like I've had plenty of times where I almost just sit and do like stream of consciousness, you know, and just get because in that moment, getting things from my head to the paper is what feels like it's most important. Definitely. But yeah, then there's other times. So lists are great. I have done the old fashioned, old school web too. Like literally what you learn in like (laughs) elementary school. I'm a former elementary school teacher. So maybe that's why. But um, (laughs) any way to kind of like organize those feelings and thoughts and moments and 
things in your head just to get it on paper um, before you start writing is, is, is helpful if you're feeling stuck, like you want to write, but you don't know where to start. Definitely, definitely. And I think kind of off the web idea, that's what worked for me was starting just going through it chronologically, sort of, you know, a linear web in a way of just, yeah, putting, putting pen to paper of this happened, then this happened, and then kind of picking those moments to go back to when I felt ready to write about them. Definitely. Uh, I am sure that there are people that are listening right now that are like, I would love to connect with Nicole or my experience sounds so similar to hers. Do you mind sharing if there's a good way that people can kind of connect with you? Yeah, I would love that. Um, So I'm mostly on Instagram at Nicole Ruth underscore creative co. So C R E. A-T-I-V-E-C-O. Awesome. I do have a website as well, but that's linked through my Instagram bio. So that's my Instagram is probably the best way to find me. And that's primarily where I share about my thyroid cancer journey um, as opposed to any other platform. Awesome. I will make sure that I put that in the show notes as well so that people can find you easily if they do want to connect. Nicole, I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation with me, for being so vulnerable and sharing not only more about your cancer experience, but for kind of detailing for us the really incredible parts of your article that really just, I think, will resonate with so many people. So thank you for sharing and um, for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to anybody who read it. It feels crazy to think that there's listeners and readers out there right now who are resonating with my story, but that is really, really cool thing. So thank you to Elephants and Tea for doing this in the first place. And thanks, Lisa, for chatting with me. Of course. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through. Be sure to tune in next time, but until then, visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.